And then I have lived in Soviet Union, so in wow. Leningrad, uh, uh, for, for a couple of years. I went to a Russian school, had to wear school uniforms, but we were the only ones that didn't have to wear a scarf, a pioneer red scarf. So we were regarded, as, regarded also as weirdos, uh, my brother and I, in that school. We started the company 2012. It took a few months before we found an investor. We had the, a window of opportunity of selling uh, uh, the company at the time when there was this big U.S. Uh, Fortune 500 company that really, really desperately needed, needed the te technology and the product into their product repertoire. We had completely different views as of when we should actually exit the company. Hello, Tero. Hello, Petri. How does it feel not being able to fly to France every second week? Uh, it gives me more time to, uh, to uh, do more work. <laughs> so I don't have to spend so much time at the airports and uh, in airplanes. Uh, so it's, uh, time-wise, it's more, more efficient. But, uh, but of course, uh, meeting my colleagues in, uh, in, in France and Germany is, uh, is always a pleasure. So uh, I kind of miss that as well. Do you think you're going back to the same schedule as before, or is that something that's going to change for permanently? That's a good question, because we've been thinking about that in the, um, in the partnership, uh, uh, this remote work, um, although we've been doing that quite a bit in the past as well, but we've been talking with both the French and uh, German offices whether we should uh, implement some kind of a different structure, whereas people systematically can actually work more remotely than until until now uh but i myself i probably probably will go back to the previous rhythm of uh of going flying over to paris every two three weeks or so um uh, but it's been a good time actually to uh, to see dur during this uh, corona crisis how things can be uh can be done remotely very, very efficiently. Uh, I closed closed an investment totally remotely as wow. well. I mean, I had met the team before before the, uh, the, the the crisis. So, so, so in a way, it wasn't really closed remotely totally. But normally, you know, at the end, you tend to meet the team again before signing and so forth. And uh, this time, we couldn't do that. So. Uh, the uh, the final touch was done all remotely. So has anything changed uh, in the frequency you do deals? So you know, is it uh, are the valuations going down, or is there any change? Um, um, I wouldn't say that we know yet exactly where the world is going, uh, but. Uh, when Corona hit us really hard, all of us, uh, beginning of March or, or mid-March, we were afraid that uh, in some of our companies, portfolio companies, uh, things would actually get, get much worse than where we are today. There's nice optimism in the air again. Was there a phase where you were hands-on helping the startups and your portfolio companies to you know 
absolutely crisis absolutely absolutely we reacted uh very fast right from the beginning uh so in other words we wanted to go through all our portfolio companies within the team of course within our own team but more importantly uh portfolio companies we want to cover all the possible scenarios with the companies on the board with the management team with the ceos uh, and we wanted to build scenarios, uh, you know, a worst case scenario, uh, kind of a base case scenario and, and, and less bad of a worst case scenario. And according to those scenarios, we want to see, of course, where the company stands. Uh, and in some of the portfolio companies that are not cash flow positive yet, we wanted to see very systematically uh, how much cash runway do they have. Because obviously, since there's a lot of fog in the air, we don't know where the markets will be going within the next 18 months. We wanted to be sure that we know in each portfolio company where we stand. What did you learn in that process and what would you do next time a bit differently? Um, I think the learning in these kind of situations, I think, is that acting fast is always the best thing to do and not start waiting uh, and, and, and seeing. So proactive reaction uh, and fast reaction is always, always good. So looking back, when I look at, for example, my portfolio companies, I really respect uh, the CEOs and founders that started taking measures, if necessary, uh, as soon as possible. So fast reaction is, is, is always good. Where did you add value as a VC, as an investor to startups? You know, what kind of uh, help uh, CEOs could expect to get you in a crisis situation? We want to make sure, of course, in all of our portfolio companies systematically that, that the strategy is right. Uh, there's the right people that can execute on the strategies. And then there's that there's enough financing resources to 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 execute on uh, on the given strategy. And here, of of course, paying attention to the uh, impact on the all different portfolio companies. What is the impact of the coronavirus? Uh, because of course, it depends a lot on the nature of the company and what what business they're in. Is it B two B, B two C, and so forth? Uh, uh, what is the impact, uh, uh, challenging the CEO on the impact, on the scenarios, and then challenging the uh, CEOs and the management team uh, what operational changes should be made or even what OPEX cuts should be made uh, to make sure the company is covered over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's basically just supporting the management team, uh, through the board work and even beyond the board work in, in building the right scenarios, uh, for the companies. Was that the reason you've been working more? Yeah. For the mo month of March. Yes. Yes. I think, I think our whole team was, uh, was working a lot with the portfolio companies 
just to make sure that we all react as quickly as possible into this new situation we're in. You have a rather unique perspective on the VC uh, world in, in Europe. You are part of a French VC, but yet you cover the Nordics. So you are basically in two places at the same time. What are the differences in culture in startups and maybe even in the VC culture? Yeah, it's always a bit dangerous to uh, generalize too much. But if one were to generalize, um, Nordics, Nordics, what comes to technology and adapting new technologies is probably a bit more open and and flexible uh, if one compares to central central Europe uh, so I think I think there's there's a small difference there's a small difference there another difference is of course if I compare startups and the venture capital industry in general the markets in Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and the Baltic countries, which is included in the uh, definition of new Nordics nowadays, the markets are pretty small, which means that both the startups and the VCs need to think internationally much sooner than in bigger markets like in Germany or France. One can one can build a rather big company in France and Germany without going overseas, but in Finland, Sweden, and Denmark, it's it's tough because the markets are just so small. So one has to think internationally day one. Do you think there's a model you prefer? Grow big and fast in one country first, or just be agile and and think about in a multicultural way from the beginning i prefer i prefer the multi multicultural approach um both in terms of um both in terms of company strategy startup strategy and both in terms of building teams i like i like teams that have diversity not only in terms of competencies and expertise but also culturally the values should be the same in startup teams but diversity always is an advantage this is my personal opinion um, so i like the diversified approach international approach from day one and i like companies that have a global ambition Because nowadays, of course, the world is shrinking faster than ever before, despite the coronavirus times that we've we've been facing, and and thinking globally uh, for ensuring competitiveness in the long run is uh, is I think extremely important, and it becomes more and more important going forward. Have you seen differences in the experimentation and and sort of? speed of uh, trial and uh, trial and errors and, and you know in that type of uh, uh, growth and company development 
I mean that you know if you're only in one one market and, and they're building product for one market, or, or you know if if you have uh, multiple markets and and you they are in different stages of the market, you need to adapt different strategies for those markets. Penetration strategies are different. So, do, do you think that there's something some advantages coming from there? Well, I think I think uh, it's an advantage for the Nordic companies that. They knew, do need to, uh, like I said, go international almost day one because the companies learn and are ready to adapt their strategies then and their operations uh, as they go forward and expand internationally. So, so clearly, I think it's an advantage. And if, let's say, a Swedish company enters the UK market uh, as early as possible, they learn more about the competitive situations, the competitive situ uh, dynamics. They learn more about uh, uh, how they can enter maybe later on the US market or go beyond the UK market. I think it's definitely an advantage uh, when you can think internationally from, from, from early days. So, so yes, absolutely. It's accelerating, I think. If you are a founder and you thinking of taking VC money and you're looking, you, you, you situated somewhere in Europe and you're just thinking now like that everybody is pretty much 100 milliseconds away. Why should I just knock on the doors of my local VC if I could as well talk to Tero or some, some people in Italy or, you know, you just name the country, just, you know, throw dot on the, on the map and just you know ping them are there any arbitrages in that sense that you could you know really pick and choose the best uh, deal terms or the best uh, partners or companies for your company and for your growth yes uh, well traditionally of course both vcs and startups have been thinking that um the earlier stage company we're talking about, and if it's a stage stage company, for example, it's easier to raise money locally. Um, the company gets support from the VC, and if the VC is located just a few blocks away uh, from the company, it of course helps. So uh, yeah, it still makes sense today. But I think VCs internationally just look at companies also overseas. Um, um, VCs tend to have expertise in certain areas or in certain sectors and, and may understand more of the startup's value add or value proposition, uh, uh, even if they're located on the other side of the world. But it does complicate and make difficult what comes to bringing added value on a daily basis uh, to the CEO or to the management team. What comes to the deal flow, can you once again generalize a bit, even though you say that that's not probably a, a good idea, but you know, you, you see hundreds, if not thousands of uh, startup pitches a year without seeing the names or without seeing... Uh, where the, the teams are coming from. Could you basically make an educated guess based on how they present themselves or, you know, is there a sort of differences? 
And are there any tips? You know, how how would you uh, look favorably in in the eyes of uh, VC? What what are the things you really would like to see also in you know when when somebody is pitching you? What are you looking for? Well, uh, it's the it's the normal VC mantra uh, uh, that you probably hear from from everybody. You know, it's 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 the team, the quality of the team, and and the, the and the, the the level of innovation and uniqueness that that uh, the value proposition represents, uh, the markets and the timing, uh, all of these are obviously very very important. Uh, um, uh, we look at all of those, um, and 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 normally we're being approached with with pitches. Of course, we tend to look at how much the pitch makes sense, how it is presented. It has some impact as well. Uh, uh, but I think it's a very holistic uh, view that we try to get of the company based on the pitch and then ultimately with the meeting and the, and the call that or a call, remote call that we have with the company. Uh, so underlining one specific point would be would not be would not be fair uh it, because it's 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 uh, petri you've been in the vc business yourself you know that it's a very very holistic approach one needs to have when 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 first evaluating the companies yet it's very emotional as well you like some deals some things are just so cool you just you know get it and and you know it's just so easy to explain versus something which is new, completely different, maybe world-changing, but it's so difficult to explain because it's so, you know, uh, unfamiliar. I, I think these things matter as well, because even though you have kind of bought the team and, uh, you know, you, you've been exposed to the to the company, but you have to sell it internally to the other guys as well. And I think that's something as well. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, um the crisper and the easier it is to to explain what the company is doing and what is specifically the hypothesis or the reasoning why one should be interested about it the easier it is to explain obviously the easier it is for any vc to start uh, uh, putting time and effort and looking to close a deal with the company. So, so that's true. That's true. Yeah. A bit in the tongue in a, a cheek founders, please don't do things. What are your top three? Well, the first point that I would say is to be as transparent as possible about your business um, uh, because creating trust with a VC is probably the most important thing from day one so not too much um, bells and whistles or sugarcoating uh, uh, is is something I I prefer. I I really need to understand what is the honest and true situation basically in the company and what stage are they truly in. Uh, 
because if one exaggerates uh, on a few topics in the pitch, for example, and one finds that out later on in the process, then that creates uh, creates doubts. Um, uh, so honesty, transparency is uh, is is probably the most important thing um, uh, that I, that I look for uh, in any any startup founder, any any uh, startup startup CEO. Um, I also prefer to talk directly uh, with a with a management team instead of uh, um, using uh, or talking to any advisors uh, in between. I prefer also to um, deal with pitches that that the founding team has built instead of uh, outsiders or any third parties. Uh, uh, so I think those two points, at least for me, come to my mind first. Can you see that there's been some ex- external help or somebody else has been doing the things, you know, when, when the CEO or whoever is you know, presenting you the case that they, they're not really on top of the, the you know, all, all the issues? Yeah, that happens rarely, but but sometimes one can see that. Um, and then then I ask myself whether whether there's too much sugar coating actually because i really want to feel the ambition and the vision of the management team of the ceo of the founder rather than having them present some ambitions or visions or 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 metrics in in a pitch that that they don't relate to you were also previously vc almost 20 years back How has the culture changed, the startup culture, but also the VC uh, standard and practices over the years? Have we become more closer to the Silicon Valley? Maybe not how it is today, but you know the West Coast maybe 10 years back or something with the practices, and and you know are we catching up? Yeah, I think I think the VC scene has changed totally. Uh, if you think about it, in the late 90s, beginning of 2000s, um, especially in Europe, uh, many of the VCs that operated then don't exist anymore. So uh, 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 the VC scene has totally changed. There's there's new management teams that have popped up over the past five to ten years. So yes, absolutely, that has changed from the VC scene. The market has changed totally. Um, in terms of the startups, uh, also I think that uh, the whole um, um, drive to become entrepreneur and to found a startup, uh, the mentality has changed totally. I mean, if you think about it, 20 years ago, fifteen, uh, twenty years ago. Uh, any talented uh, uh, graduate from universities would rather start working for uh, consultancy firms or or join a big corporate. Uh, but nowadays, um, uh, I feel that the most ambitious um, um, uh, graduates want to join join startups. 
uh, or start founding their own startups. So I think the scenery has changed both from the startup point of view and the VC, uh, uh, from the VC uh, uh, market point of view totally over the past 15 15 to 20 years. And then uh, today, as you very well know, it's so much easier in a way and faster and much more capital intensive to create new startups thanks to all the cloud and digital technologies that you have out there and the new distribution channels so yes it's uh it's a huge generation shift that has happened over the past uh over the past 15 to 20 years your background is also quite unique in a sense that uh, you've been living in many countries for many, many years and looking your career history as well. You were first in school and then you suddenly country manager of Boeing company. How did that happen? Yeah, I was uh, living, uh, like, like you said, practically all my life um or my childhood um abroad uh, except i did my high school here in uh, in finland but then i went to study abroad again in switzerland and, and, and belgium and uh, after my mba uh, uh in 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 the solvay business school in brussels um uh, I started uh, in Helsinki, so I wanted to come back to uh, my home country uh, to work as a project manager for, in fact, for McDonnell Douglas um, uh, in the offset program. So I started off actually not directly as a country manager, but as a, as a project manager for, for the offset program. And then after a few years, uh, uh, well, I was promoted as a, as a country manager for the Boeing Corporation. So Boeing Corporation acquired uh, McDonnell Douglas in, uh, in the mid-90s. So that's how I, I turned out to be the country manager for the Boeing Corporation here in, uh, here in Finland. Which countries you lived uh, uh, in, in your childhood? You mentioned that you, you were practically abroad all the time. Um, I lived... I lived in Belgium uh, twice, in fact, first for four years and then for two years. Then I have uh, lived in uh, in the UK, in, in London, for uh, five years. And then I have lived in Soviet Union, so in wow. Leningrad, uh, uh, for, for a couple of years. Uh, during Do you speak the, Russian? Uh, I used to. I used to, I, do, I, I still speak a little bit, but uh, I don't use it enough to say that. that uh, when was that? That was during the Brezhnev times. So that was in the uh, beginning of 1980s. So that, okay. was, uh, that was interesting for, uh, for a 12, 13-year-old boy. Um, and then I have lived in Switzerland, in, uh, in Geneva. What are your recollections from the Soviet time? Because it, it's completely different, you know, from the your other experience and you you sort of uh, early teenager at that time. Yeah, to be completely honest, 
I lived, I liked living in all these countries that I mentioned. Uh, I have really, really good memories. But the one and a half years or two years in, in Leningrad, uh, those were weird times because even for a 12, 13 year old boy um, living in, in Soviet Union, I could see the huge difference in the, uh, in the system, obviously. And I could even understand that the system isn't really, uh, um, you know, I mean, compared to London and Brussels and Geneva, uh, Leningrad was, uh, uh, at least in my eyes, more like a third world country, uh, developing, developing uh, city. Uh, so uh, it was, it was weird. I went to a Russian school. Um, and I was the only uh, student in the school besides my brother that didn't have to. We had to wear school uniforms, but we were the only ones that didn't have to wear a scarf, a pioneer red scarf. So we were regarded, as, regarded also as weirdos, uh, my brother and I, in that school. And... Uh, and we were we were different uh, from the others because we came from this uh, capitalistic uh, world uh, that wasn't regarded highly uh, during those times in in Leningrad. How did you spend your time? The rest of the Europe was uh, watching MTV and and you know doing all those cool things with satellite TVs and and consoles and what were the fun things to do? We Soviet didn't have TV? any of that. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, uh, you know, I was I was a kid. I was a kid, so uh, I spent uh, spent my time with my family and uh, friends. And then, obviously, we had a lot of uh, foreign friends that came from the uh, the mean capitalistic world as well. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, weird times. You had also been a startup founder. How did that came about? Well, I worked for Nokia and Nokia's leadership uh, for four or five years uh, during the bad times from 2007 to 2012. And um, I was uh, first working in M&A because during 2007, 2008, uh, uh, Nokia had the strong, strong push to uh, acquire companies. Uh, new digital companies, uh, especially from the U.S. And then I was working in business development, so I was heading their uh, new business development uh, uh, team within Nokia. And as a side program, I innovated a, a product or a business. And when 2012 came about and Nokia was... Uh, was in difficulties, in fact, um, um, I had the opportunity to uh, take my team with me uh, from Nokia and start a company uh, based on this, this, this innovation, this new product that then we, uh, we uh, continued developing in, in, in the startup. How did that happen? You were like, okay, we need to jump out of the Nokia ship and do something. Did you went through the portfolio and, and see that, okay, what are the things? Or was was it obvious that you choose uh, the one you actually did? 
Well, it was obvious uh, because it's uh, it's it's a product and innovation that that uh, for the for probably the first time ever I, I I made myself. So I had very strong ownership and passion towards that product. Obviously, because it was my baby. Um, uh, so there was no question about it. I mean, that was the whole thing why I was so excited about it, the opportunity to uh, then spin it out and uh, and start a company. So how how many projects you had your, your babies there? Did you did you were sort of incubating different ideas to the certain stages and they all? That's that's what happened. we were doing. That's what we were doing. Uh, I can't remember exactly, but we probably had about let's say ten programs uh, simultaneously. So we were trying out different new businesses, new product ideas, new service ideas, uh, incubated them. And then obviously we would kill many of them because they wouldn't make sense or we wouldn't get the right funding uh, uh, from Nokia. So we were trying to come out with new product ideas for Nokia. So in in other words, uh, uh, building a future of Nokia from the product side beyond just mobile phones. So how many out of those projects are still alive or or made it out of Nokia? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) I think most of them, obviously Nokia changed totally its strategy, um, especially when the mobile phones division was sold to to Microsoft. So I haven't been following up so, so closely that I would even know but I would say uh, I'd be happy to know that there would be even a few of those programs that would still exist. I, I frankly do not even know. Can you do you still remember the sales bits about the products so that the audience can know a bit? You know what you were doing and what, why it was so exciting. Oh yes, I remember that very well because uh, it was the idea was, and that was back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. I had somebody. Uh, a colleague of mine or, or a team member of mine, his name was actually Arto Leppisari, who's a, who's a startup founder today, a very successful one. He, uh, he's a technology guy and he told me that uh, the optical uh, technology has progressed so much that it may be possible, in fact, to measure heart rate accurately from your wrist instead of from your chest. So at that point, during those times, as you know, uh, we had the Polars in the world and Garmin's in the world uh, and Sunto here in Finland that made heart rate monitors, but you had to wear a strap around your chest. Now with the new technology, optical technology, uh, one could, it was considered then, maybe uh, uh, create a wrist device that measures heart rate, uh, like wearing a watch on your wrist. And you can so measure... it was like an early version of uh, iWatch. Exactly, exactly. And we were the first ones in the market to create that technology back so, in 2010, what, what, what... 2011. So what happened? Well, Nokia decided, I was pitching to uh, Nokia's uh, top management that Nokia could actually enter the wellness market um, with a uh, wellness device 
uh, wellness wrist device that could, thanks to the optical heart rate measurement possibility, could actually measure continuously uh, consumers' uh, uh, fitness levels, uh, stress levels, uh, sleeping patterns, uh, uh, continuously from the rest. So it was, uh, it was an innovation and we went proceeded with that program and we got a lot of funding for it. But unfortunately, 2012, uh, most of the new programs that Nokia was uh, pursuing uh, were basically cut because of the obvious reasons that Nokia was in the situation where Nokia was in 2012. And that gave the opportunity to, uh, to start a company around it. Uh, was it... Uh easy process or were there pain points to get funding and, and really get it off? Well, it took some time. Yeah, yeah. we started the company 2012. It took a few months before we found an investor. Um, uh, ultimately, we had two investors uh, that, that joined, joined the, uh, that, that were ready to, uh, to, to invest. We, we chose one. Uh, so it took some time because during 2012-2013, investments into hardware was not very obvious. Uh, there were only a few VCs here in the Nordics that were a handful of VCs that were investing in in hardware. So it took some time before we uh, before we uh, got the funding. So now you were in a different side of the table. Before you were selecting cases, and now you were pitching. Yeah, that was What a very that was a very good learning process. Um, um, uh, it was extremely good to, uh, uh, from the experience point of view, to uh, find my own com- company and sit on the other side of the table and pitching to uh, to VCs and negotiating with VCs. Uh, I think being now a VC helps me understand that side of the table from a completely different perspective than, than if I hadn't had that experience. Looking back, is there something you would have done differently? Uh, obviously, does the company actually still exist or what, what happened? You left and, and then you joined uh, the VC world again. That's right. Yeah, I left, I left three years after we raised our money. It was a good time to leave because basically... Uh, Uh, the investor, a Russian oligarch that invested, and myself, we had completely different views as of when we should actually exit the company. We had an opportunity to sell the company, and there was really a window of opportunity, a good window of opportunity to sell sell the company. We had a few offers, uh, and we had completely different views with the investor, uh, whether to sell it or not. So uh, that was a good time for me to basically leave the company and sell my shares. But the company exists today, still today. So it hasn't been sold. So it was actually, uh, looking back, it, it would have been uh, still a good opportunity to sell it. You know, it was sort of the, it would have been the right choice. Probably. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Looking back, it would have been a good, good, good time to sell because uh, while we were the first ones in the market, Uh, offering a device with a heart rate, heart rate monitoring uh, capability, uh, we knew already back then that uh, Apple will come out with a product, Samsung will come out with a product, and then ultimately also Garmin and Suunto 
and Fitbit and Withings come have come out with the product, and we had the, a window of opportunity of selling selling uh, uh, the company at the time when when there was this big U.S. Uh, Fortune 500 company that really really desperately needed needed the te technology and the product into their product repertoire, but obviously now today it's a very very competitive market. There's just so many devices out there, and the uh, technology itself has. Uh, basically commoditized, I would almost say. Would there have been something you could have, you know, tilted it to the, to the yes, we're going to sell, you know, something in the way you selected your investors, negotiated the deals, you know, if, if you could sort of uh, rewind. Was that something that you could sort of learn from that process or tell other guys that please don't do these things? So, you know, yeah. something which is in your control. Yeah, choosing the right investor. That's that's extremely important, uh, and that's what I tell the startups as well. And I, I learned it the hard way myself as well. Uh, one shouldn't go necessarily with the investor that that offers the highest valuation and the highest amount of money. Uh, one should choose an investor that truly understands the business uh, and the startup world. In my case, I had a Russian investor that um, a banker basically that did not quite understand the uh, startup realities and the dynamics and what are the right windows of opportunity for selling a company if that's needed. So choosing the right investor is definitely extremely important right from the start. What kind of sacrifices have you done in your life? Now that's an interesting question, Petri. That's actually not my question to be exact. Uh, Hampus Jakobson, who I interviewed some time ago, he asked this question and he said that uh, the answers are really interesting usually, that, they, that you know, it's also very unexpected what comes from the people. Yeah. I mean, positively, turn it, turning it into a positive uh, perspective, uh, there's obviously so many interesting things one could be doing, uh, but one cannot do everything. <laughs> so there's there's many interesting startups that could be founded. There's so many countries where one would like to live in. Uh, there's so many things one would like to do, but it's always, of course a choice that one needs to be making along the way. Um, so obviously one could argue that since one doesn't make different choices or choose something else, one, one, one sacrifices uh, from that point of view, if you know what I mean, Petri. No. So what are the countries you would uh, love to uh, live and what are the startups you would really like to found? There has been many ideas along the way uh, in different different uh, fields that I've had or, or even, even sectors, uh, but I don't think it's very fruitful going into all these <laughs> opportunities that I have missed <laughs> along the way. 
And there's, of course, many, many countries where I would love to live in. Um, on the other hand, um, obviously, although there are many places one would love to live in, uh, I think it always depends on uh, the, the real important thing is what you are doing and who are the people that you're surrounded with. Uh, I think that's 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 the most important thing than thinking too much of you know whether whether it would be nicer than than in Helsinki where eight months a year it's dark and cold. So what makes you happy? My loved ones around me, uh, the great Finnish nature. We're approaching midsummers, and it's a fantastic time of the year here in uh, in Finland, Helsinki, uh, as the midsummer approaches. Uh, people and the nature makes me makes me happy. And then the third third uh, third point would obviously be uh, any passion that that I have uh, on my daily daily work is uh, makes me happy as well. So uh, achieving things, getting things done makes me uh, makes me happy. So how do you define success? Trying hard and then achieving um, achieving something or the other way around is uh, one could see that in a way trying hard and even failing can be a success what comes to the learning process. What is your favorite word? My favorite word, well, of course, holistically speaking, it's uh, love. What is your least favorite word? It would be the opposite then. Hate. Hate? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what turns you on creatively, spiritually or emotionally? Um, a passion that you find a passion into something, what something you you're off? doing, or passion to a person. What turns you off? Um, bad behavior, jealousy. What is your favorite curse word? My favorite curse word. Oh, a Finnish one, of course. Satana. Is there a proper translation in French? It's it's in English. It's Satan. But uh, in French, uh, the French word that one uses more commonly and is probably merde, which is shit. What sound or noise do you love? The sound of the sea in my summer cottage. The sea and the wind after a nice sauna session. What sound or noise do you hate? The sound when you go to a dentist clinic. The dentist. Is it the drilling or is it the, the drilling? It's the drilling, yes. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? If I was really talented in one art area, in music, for example, that would be uh, that would be fantastic to try it out. What profession would you not like to do? 
a profession probably where routine is uh is 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 key um let's say uh a pilot for example i would get bored if you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era which one would you choose facebook why when facebook was founded uh it was a social project but it was totally unclear how they would turn it into a business how they would make money with it and i think it's just fabulous the whole journey uh facebook's journey is just extraordinary